0: What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode is the inimitable Simon Aronson. When I was in Chicago, I had the distinct pleasure of visiting Simon and his wife, Jenny, in their lovely home. Before we began, I was gobsmacked by Jenny's ability to tell me what objects I had in my pocket while she was facing away from me, so the episode begins with my brain in a puddle on the floor. It was bananas. Anyway, Simon has written extensively about card magic, and although he made his living as a lawyer for many years, he cultivated various talents like card magic, which we speak about a bit in the episode, including art collecting, ballroom dancing, and piano playing. We discuss the Chicago magic scene at length, and Simon shares some of his experience sitting with Marlowe for many years. As I mentioned in the last episode, While I was in Chicago, I unfortunately had some difficulties with a microphone, so please bear with me for this episode. Luckily, the only mic that gave me any problems was mine, and Simon's audio is crisp and clear. I don't really add that much value anyway, so no worries, I'm sure you're gonna love the episode just the same. This really is a great episode, and Simon was a wonderfully generous guest and host. Before I forget, he wanted me to mention a couple of things to you. The first is that you can read a charming article about him and other Marlowe disciples in the August 2016 issue of Chicago Magazine. The second is that Simon's imaginary friend, Funsky is looking to drive some traffic to his website. That's MergelFunsky.com, M-E-R-G-E-L-F-U-N-S-K-Y dot I'll provide a link to both on MagicalThinkingPodcast.com. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook, by searching Magical Thinking Podcast. If you want to learn magic, cardistry, or a couple of quick bar bets, head over to artofmagic.com. Art of Magic is the premier destination for learning the fundamentals of sleight of hand technique, as well as some of the most advanced magical applications of dexterity in the world. While you're at it, you'll probably need a deck of cards or two, so head over to artofplay.com to get what you need. Art of Play also provides a curated collection of games puzzles, and other amusements which offer epiphanies for the curious mind. Anyway, get into the episode, Simon is absolutely delightful, and if you have any magic-related questions or comments on the show, let me know what you think by emailing me at elliottterrell.com. That's m-e-at-e-l-l-i-o-t-t-t-e-r-r-a-l dot com. This is Simon Aronson, please enjoy. David's with me. We just witnessed a little bit of um, sorcery, I think is a good word for it. No,
1: just just plain old ordinary mind reading.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, that'll... <laughs> that'll <laughs> yeah, uh, that was... I, I could not be more... I have no idea. I mean, it's not <laughs> even like
1: it's it, it's not the old vaudeville come now please now quickly can you please tell me what that is yes, oh it's, no, it's yeah. a coin <laughs> 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 no we no we try to get away from that
0: <laughs> okay so to set the scene for the listeners okay <laughs> we came in <laughs> it's it's late at night you're very kind to let me into your home and david um we come in you give us a quick tour at the apartment and then you proceed to blow our minds With just unbelievable mind reading, I like I can't. I don't. I don't know how to. I just.
1: <laughs> well, we can talk I've about it if and when you want to. I've
0: never started a show being flummoxed, <laughs> so this is a new feeling for me because I just am totally. I have no idea. Okay, good. No idea. Good. Wow, amazing.
1: Well, put you know, I mean, there's a real ex- easy explanation, and that is that it could be mind reading, and that's. We toy with the idea of leaving people with that. Um, we've been doing this. Ginny and I have been doing it since 1970. So that's what 48 you know, 48, you know, 48 years. Um, and yes, you do get better with age. Um, and uh, I mean, I actually did it for. F- for five years before I met Jenny. Oh, wow. So there were two other people floating around the world who know the rudiments of what it was back in the 60s. Um, if those people
0: saw it now, would they even. I
1: mean, other than I, it being you, I and mean, then kind of getting. Oh, I Would they be able to recognize it? Uh, and, and not mechanically, and I don't think anybody has that kind of memory or something, but, you know. We, we just actually, uh, Ginny and I, did a demonstration and a talk for Carthage College. Um, they have a, a guy named Tony Barnhart, you might know his name. He uh, just recently wrote an article in The Linking Ring. He's a professor of uh, psychology and he is also a magician. Uh, so he's put the two together and teaches a course on psychology of magic. Uh, it, I'm not sure how successful it is in the sense that the students who come there know nothing about magic, so I don't know how they're going to understand the psychology of, but, but he does talk a lot about um, perception, misdirection... Mem- ways to use memory, all sorts of psychological tools that are used in deception that we know as magicians that you know other people have used in TED Talks and stuff like that. And he kind of gets the class to get a feel for it by inviting magicians or people who are in ma- magic There, uh, he's done the course several times before, and I know that Eugene Berger was one of his favorite speakers. But he comes to Chicago often to, because that's where magic, there just aren't that many magicians in Kenosha, Wisconsin. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we gave them a whole talk and lecture and demonstration of this sort of thing. Um, And one of the questions they asked was sort of, You know how do you do? They're not allowed to ask a parent. how do you do it? But they ask sort of how was it? uh, How did did we sort of keep it going and keep it moving and growing? And um, we use the analogy of sort of learning a language. And I, I think I mean there are there are many differences, but if you think about it, if you want to learn a foreign language. Uh, you could learn French in a month. Sure. Um, Some kind of conversational French, and you wouldn't have, you would be very halting, and you might be, only know a few phrases, but you could get by maybe a little bit. And then maybe after a few years, you'd actually start having it flow, and then sentences would roll off. But the hard part is learning idioms, and learning nuances, and all that. And, that's kind of the way a two person mind reading act has grown for us, so when you ask, would they recognize it um Probably. I'm not sure that we would recognize Ginny and I would recognize what we were doing at the very at the very beginning, sure. you know, so this is constantly growing, and it grows pretty much. With every show we do, because you get new ideas, you get new obstacles, you get thrown a little bit. You know, there's a certain amount of jazzing that sure. goes along in this stuff. You know, we have stories about that. You know, <laughs> but
0: <laughs> well, how much is jazzing a part of uh, your creative process?
1: Um, I, I in the in the mentalism man. in the mentalism, um it's it's where I where I am I'm, I'll I'll give you an example I'll, I'll, here, here's a here's a very specific example that actually did happen um, we were doing a show at uh, Magic Chicago which is no longer here but Ma- it was the, a regular place for 10 years um, and uh, magicians would come all the time but it was a regular lay audience too and um Somebody. We were at the end of our show. We close with everybody the fields wide open. Take out any objects you want, and Jenny tries her best to mentally describe them because she's blindfolded. Probably one of the very few acts in magic where she actually can't see <laughs> when she's blindfolded. <laughs> um, but um, somebody held up an object, and it was clearly something that I not only had never seen, I mean, I knew what it was, but we were not in any way remotely prepared. So, um, I gave Ginny a thought, transferring it to her, and she said, "Um, I'm getting the impression of of a fork. It's a fork. And then she said, but I'm getting more. I'm getting more. I'm getting the impression also of of music. It's sort of like a musical fork. And I jumped in immediately and said, absolutely right. It's a tuning fork. That is exactly what it is. Now, as far as that audience is concerned, she, she nailed it.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, that's just me thinking... You I'll know, I mean, those, well, I mean, you know, yeah. we do a lot of banquets and things like that. So we're we're very familiar with Silver. objects that might be silverware and things like that. Sure. And, uh, you know, in terms of general categories, it has to do with, mm-hmm. you know, general areas. I can do that. So that I mean, there's a jazzing, you know, sure. now. So that yeah, I don't, I don't want to get into the minute. Of no, that. no, no. I'm just saying that there's an awful lot of thinking on feet and. There's some certain thinking on Ginny's as to how to describe it and what best she can say. One of the very interesting things, I mean, this we can get into language later on, but one of the very interesting things is how you can use language in, in all of magic um, to make it sound like you're very specific, but in fact... You're generalizing. Yes. And in, so that later on it is remembered that you got it, you know, even though it was ambiguous. And so part of what we're part of what Ginny's job is, is to describe things in ways that will be remembered quite more specifically than maybe she was. But after things are put together that, sure. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, a,
0: it's like a confirmation bias. After the,
1: yes, exactly. On
0: the audience's part. That's got to
1: require a huge amount of mental agility for both of you. Uh, uh, in the old days, we had it.
0: <laughs>
1: I don't know. I am saying about five minutes before you had it because <laughs> that was uh, yeah. bananas. <laughs> uh, the, it, it, this is not the kind of act that you, can, that you do quickly or you learn uh, m- to only do for a short time. Um we've we've coached a number of different teams over the years. I'm not in any full fledged giving up secrets. People do their own things, but helping along and the very first thing we say is make sure you got a partner with whom you're fairly committed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean we've done a number of places we know a number of couples, but all of a sudden, you know, people start getting job offers at different cities and things like that, and it, it doesn't work anymore, yeah, and, yeah. you know. Wow. That's
0: amazing. So, how long have you two been
1: together? Um, Since the... Base, base, or s- or no, actually, it's 1970. I, oh, yeah. Here, I, this is Jenny's favorite story. <laughs> and it, um, I mean, I knew her. We were students at the University of Chicago, and um, the very first time we ever dated or went 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 out on a date together it was not, I, she was not my date um <laughs> i was I was with one of my other partners and we were doing uh a nightclub in chicago and um jinny's then boyfriend Bob was a good friend of mine and um i said hey, um, we're doing a nightclub, you've never seen the act, come on along with us and you can sit there and have a few drinks and see it. So he brought his date, who was Ginny. (laughs) And so we, the four of us got in the car, we went to the show, it was at a nice nightclub, we did fine and all that, it was, a lot of fun. And this was important pin money for us as students. I mean, you know, we were making something like, Hey, $200 a night. And that was a, that was a lot of, a lot of money in 65 or 66. I can't remember. Um, and, um, Jenny told me afterwards that after she saw the act, she had to guard her thoughts because she was really worried that I was going to be reading her mind from, she was in the back seat with Bob and what she might be thinking and all that stuff. So that was our first real time together. Um, When we actually started dating in 1970, it was weird because um, we we were a very good couple and we had, we loved each other and she had moved in with me and uh, we were living together. But every... Friday and Saturday night, I'd be going out with my ex-girlfriend oh. to do the mind reading act um, because <laughs> we needed the money. Yeah. And and I remember the line Ben. Jenny was really pissed off because <laughs> she'd be staying home late. It's always a Friday or Saturday night. That's club night. I mean, that was when you did it. So I'd be coming home at two in the morning having been out with my ex-girlfriend and Ginny's sitting here at home and and I remember my, when I, saw, I told her, I said, it's purely mental. <laughs> um, but she basically said, this can't go on. And I said, well, I'm not giving up the act, so there's only one other alternative. And I think it was basically pure jealousy that caused her to, <laughs> to learn the act. And that's how we started. Wow, that's so funny. And, you know, we... we In the, let's say, in the 70s, we were doing tons of Sweet Sixteen parties. Uh, That was our real bread and butter. I mean, girls loved it and. uh, It's tantalizing. Well, there's a, there's a whole act. I mean, this is what you saw as sort of the last 10, 15 minutes of it. And with a big crowd, it's really good because we're meandering around. And, um, but. When we went to law school, we kept it going, and then we started practicing law, and then we really ran into a problem, because we're both being lawyers by day and doing this in the evening, and Ginny, who is a very ethical, moral person, said, my clients are in the audience. (laughs) We were doing private dinner parties on the North Shore, and there's people, you know, she's trying to be a lawyer during the day, uh, and... Pretending to be a mind reader at night, and we were we were um, billing it as um, I, I won't say as real, but my standard line whenever asked is we're as real as they come. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's that, 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 that's that general to uh, specific. That's my yeah. That's my that's my this close we get to a disclaimer, and she just didn't feel comfortable, so we sort of had to stop doing. Private parties or anywhere where our her clients would be, and, that, and So. So
0: where did you take it after um, kind
1: of that? We it? we 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 kept it social more. I mean, we've always done it for magicians. Uh, we do a lot of friends. We do some charity work and stuff like that. Um, but we've kept it. It's the kind of thing where. I mean, I guess it's true of anything, but certainly memory stuff and mental stuff, you have to keep it alive or else it's going to die out. So we've kept it going. And um, once we both retired, we said, hey, this is the time to make it alive. And so (laughs) the past past six or seven years, we've really sort of done a lot more with it. It's fun.
0: I can imagine. I mean... <laughs> I would imagine that it would be very fun to wreck people like
1: this guy. <laughs> <back>. <laughs> well, I, but but keep in mind, I am not a performer. I mean, I have con- I mean, I do. She's con- the
0: performer.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, the the be- When you say that, the best thing for us is for her is for the audience to remember that this says is a one person act.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I, I mean,
1: you know. The, uh, uh, I I have I have as much ego as anybody in magic, but I have always said in the in the mind reading, this is Ginny's Ginny's name comes first on our billing. Um, This is I'm just her assistant. You know, I in the earlier years, I would do mind reading, too. And not not anymore. I mean, I just we just don't do it. I just am there to help her out or, you know, she's the one making predictions. She's the one doing all that stuff. Why is that important? Um, I'd rather they not think about there's a second person involved. Um, It's just, you know, I'd rather they think that, I mean, sometimes we do say that the more people who are thinking about an object, the clearer the thoughts are going to be. So I'm going to help think of it too. Um, But that would be my only justification for helping make that thought concrete. I'd rather they remember that Ginny read their mind you know?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's amazing. How did you, how did you start building that before Jenny, before your first partner? What was the, what was the draw to it? Why were you attracted uh, to it?
1: There's two events. Um, You have to understand I grew up in New York City. I'm, and I mean, I'm, I was part of fame, the future American magical entertainers. I was I was doing magic since eight as an eight-year-old kid, but part of being in New York is you get to see a lot of Broadway plays. My parents are wanted to expose us to culture and stuff like that. And in nineteen fifty-six there was a play on Broadway called The Great Sebastians. The Great Sebastians was it was it was a comedy. Um, and it starred two very famous people, Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine, who were the husband and wife grand um, and grand actors of the theater in those days. But the reason this is important for me was they played a mind reading team that was performing in Europe dur- during World War II and was caught behind the Nazi lines. Mm. And... It's a big question of sort of escaping, but they basically escape by convincing the Germans that they are for real. Yeah. And um, what was strange about that play I mean it's a it's a funny play. I have the script, I've done research on it, I know it, I've reread it. It's in retrospect, probably not as good a play as I remembered. But the first two and a half minutes of the play, when the lights went down on this Broadway theater. Mr. Sebastian goes out in the audience and goes right across the front row and g- starts asking for object, And Mrs. Sebastian, st- on stage blindfolded, starts naming them. Now, I was absolute, that's, I'm, I was 13 at the time. So I was, I, I was already into magic and doing kid magic and sure. birthday parties and all that. But, um, I just, it blew my mind. And I, I so that was the first time I actually saw two-person mind reading and was absolutely fascinated by it. Um, I started reading. There are things from the vaudeville era, you know, the Zanzigs the, or the Pittingtons um, in Britain and England, just amazing, amazing kind of um, two-person acts. Um, and And mind reading, you know, especially when it is couched with some form of belief in reality has a hook in ways that other kinds of entertaining magic just doesn't. I mean, you could, you know, uh, look at some of the guys who've been on television and, you know, uh, um, you know, if they're, if they're perceived as real, that's captures one's imagination. Um, so that was my first exposure, um, Time then passes because there's nothing I could do about it other than learn about it. I'm a 13-year-old kid, doesn't have a perfect committed partner at the time, (laughs) you know? Um, But in 1965, and we're jumping ahead now, when I was in Chicago, um, Eddie Marlowe said to me, go see... um, one of my friends, you like him, and that was Eddie Fields.
0: Oh, and it's so funny because Eddie Fields is who I was thinking about.
1: It. Oh, yeah. No, Eddie Fields, Eddie uh, and it was weird. I was, uh, let's see, I was a graduate student in philosophy at the time at the University of Chicago, and um, taking a lot of philosophy courses, the thought of going downtown from the university campus to the loop to Woolworths, which is a five and 10 cent store that no longer exists, but everybody knew about Woolworths, to see a guy who was basically pitching horoscopes and convincing the rest of the audience to buy horoscopes because it was being sold by Professor George Martz. Um I had that to me that was an easy choice. I just spent all my time at Woolworth's and just said, you know, to heck with about a month worth of courses and Eddie and I got to be very fast friends. And because well, there's a long story, but I
0: uh, <laughs> We have
1: as much time uh, as you have. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know how much you know about Eddie, but Eddie was a born con man and proud of it. Um, um, and the mind reading was something that they did uh, strictly to sell horoscopes. They weren't doing much of anything else with it. Um, and Eddie knew Eddie Field's new card magic, and George Martz uh, was a, didn't know anything about magic, and actually didn't he w- had just been recruited to do the 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 act, but he knew it. And uh, unfortunately, he was an alcoholic. That's how George died, um, and so. The Woolworths act that Eddie and George did would go on for about 15 minutes. They'd pitch their horoscopes. Eddie would immediately take the cash and divide it between the two. George would take his share, go across the street to a bar and drink it. Mm -hmm. And I would immediately sit with Eddie at the Woolworths counter and we would talk magic, mind reading, card tricks. And he would tell me about all the various cons that he did. Um, I would try as best I could to get any information about the true person Mind Reading Act. And I know an awful lot other than he never would discuss his system. The the actual transmissions and things like that, that was not... That was his livelihood, and I didn't expect him to give it. But but situations one would come up with and how to do things, you know, we... we, uh,
0: The the mindset. Yeah,
1: and so that's when I went back and took my then-girlfriend, and uh, we did it for two years. And then there was a second girlfriend, and then Jenny came along. At this point, we're not expecting another partner. (laughs) (laughs) But no, but but between the great Sebastians as being an inspiration and Eddie Fields of seeing it real... um, It was, I'll tell you, um, trying to develop a system that worked for me was sort of a really interesting kind of, in terms of magical creativity, um, I would not have wanted to use anything that Eddie Fields had, even if I had known it, because Eddie Fields uh, didn't talk really low class broken english non consecutive sentence street talk he would mumble under his breath and things like that and i was a student at the university of chicago where you're supposed to be esoteric and anybody was going to see me was not only going to know about perfect english and know whether i was speaking perfect english would would have corrected me if i didn't <laughs> if i didn't speak it so i had to develop things that that worked for me. And, um, the person who was most helpful in that respect was Jay Marshall. Um, I, I told Jay, Hey, I want to develop this kind of act. And he basically, he was excited about the fact that somebody in Chicago was going to do it. And, um, He opened up his library, and I must have spent three, four weeks there upstairs, and he showed me all sorts of little manuscripts that he had from the vaudeville days. You know, one-sheet, mimeographed kind of things that people would sell, or or he just referred me to books because I was a kid. I couldn't afford magic books in those days. I mean, that wasn't, but but he was very helpful in that. and he was one of our big supporters, too. I mean, um, later when we did shows, we did um, one of our early Chicago shows was the invocation that um, uh, what's his name? Tony, uh, Tony Andrews, did, um, you know, the bizarre magic. But they had a big mental conven- uh, convention once a year and we did an early invocation and Jay was the one who put us up for it and cuz Tony didn't know and we turned out to be one of the hits of of that convention so uh, it was and, and people you know Jay and other people were pretty pretty supportive
0: Where did you foster the drive to create a system to write a bunch of card magic but I mean what what where did you get the thing that's inside of you that pushes you to create magic
1: The the card magic was there from the beginning as a kid Mm. i mean i went through the full birthday party stint um i mean for short periods for example for short periods i was a pitchman at um in uh, i I was very fortunate because uh, as a kid i grew up in rye new york and rye is the home of playland Playland is New York's second largest amusement park after, or at least it was in the in the fifties and sixties, uh, after Coney Island. And they had a full boardwalk, and they had the boardwalk had a magic and novelty, not just magic, you know, squirting pens and exploding these and that stuff and shocking books and all. And because I was always, as a little kid, in front of the magic, I bought all my, my, I got my first set of linking rings of atoms, my uh, egg bag there, my color vision. But I got all of that stuff at the Playland Magic Store. And I got to know the guy who ran it, old German fellow, Emil Deutsch. And as soon as I hit 16 and was eligible to actually work, um, he said, hey, kid, we need somebody. You want to sell magic? And so for two summers, I during, I, I was the pitchman be, behind the magic store, and that was first of all I learned actually to pitch. Sure, you know, I mean not Sven and and uh stripper decks and stuff like that, slum magic, <laughs> and 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 I regularly was squirting people with. Disappearing ink and uh, i mean i had some close counters because sometimes the guy wouldn't believe that it was going to come off (laughs) you know Uh, i had a counter between us so i would shoot him and don't worry don't worry don't worry it's gonna (laughs) just give it a few minutes (laughs) um but i i did that kind of thing and you know when you're doing that you're I, i one of the nice things about the job was that i got to read the little books that were behind the counter Mm -hmm. i mean i couldn't have afforded them but there they were and so whenever somebody was not there i would read books i did card magic um nothing special um but i was certainly had royal road um and i was into card magic but um really not in any serious way um The people. I was a member of Fame the last three years of um, my New York stay. That would have been fifty-eight through sixty-one. And Fame is a club sponsored by the um, New York City Department of Parks, boys' club um, for magicians, and they met every uh, every other Saturday. So I'd come in from Rye. Is
0: that still a
1: I, I don't know. You know who founded it? I mean, you, you do you remember Sherry Lewis, Lamb Chop, the puppets, the she's she was a, bu- a puppeteer. Um uh, oh. Oh, well, this, this is all, Don't we're probably, I'm probably slightly older than you. <laughs> um, but no, no, Lam, uh, Sherry Lewis was a very famous TV star, and Lamb Chop was her hand puppet. Oh, okay. Right, right. But her father was a guy named Abraham Horowitz, and his, his stage name was Peter Pan the Magic Man. And he was one of... He would have been what Silly Billy is now in New York City. He was the kids' magic store, and he was the one who founded fame. But the reason I mention that is because although most of the club members were people like me doing kids' parties and, you know, Forgetful Freddy and Freddy Cat Rabbit and stuff like that, um, in the back of the room, two guys who were a little standoffish, but they would show me tricks with Percy Diaconis and, and Johnny Benzeis, So they were in my club. That's fun. And that was, that was sort of my first exposure to heavy card magic. Um, heavy. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, P- Percy, Percy and I actually got to be good, very good friends. There's a lot of Percy stories that went on for a while. He's, um, he's almost my age. Uh, just, within within 6 months of that and um Johnny Benzaeus was a cool cat he was um he looked more like jimmy dean than a, james dean than anybody else but they showed me card magic that i didn't understand because sure. you know so i i i started getting impressed and then i came to i left new york to come to the university of chicago in fall of 61 <clears throat> and As soon as I got here, I immediately said, where's the magic store? And they introduced me to Magic Inc. And I hung around Magic Inc. from then on whenever I had spare moments. And Chicago in the 60s is the right time to learn card magic. (laughs) Um, So, you know, uh, my real, I don't think I got serious into card magic until Chicago. I actually do. I have my very first card pu- trick published was when I was a teenager in New York. It was in Genie. Um, like I was in my teens. Um, and I think it, at the time, I guess it was creative. I, you know, that's all a matter of retrospect. <laughs> but I didn't start doing card magic seriously until I got into Chicago. And even then, it took a while. I think I didn't meet Ed Marlowe and Dave Solomon until 65 or 66, and clearly... So you were here
0: for several years before
1: you met them. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, And doing a lot of magic, but it was birthday party magic and, Mm -hmm. you know... um, What's but but I was a, I was I did I was a student. <laughs> sure. I mean I I was actually going. You know, University of Chicago is not a slough off school, and of you know yeah. I wanted to do well, and I mean I liked the place. I actually wanted to be a perpetual student, um, <laughs> and and ultimately almost I, I was a student at University of Chicago for twelve years. So so. Um,
0: All the way through your doctorate there.
1: I didn't get. I I went. I went through college in three years and felt that I was chipped because I didn't get a fourth year of education. So I said, good, I'll do some graduate work. And I stayed in graduate work for six years in philosophy. And then I decided, I'm not sure what it is that philosophers do professionally. Um, So I went to law school and that was three more years. Um, So it was 12, 12 good years of pretty heavy stu- studying sure. but you know those were the formative years with um with Marlowe and steve drawn and dave solomon and um and of course you know being around chicago um i mean you're talking about bar magic i mean crandall had his place jim ryan had his place um uh, a couple more people um I'm trying to remember their names the uh little the little mousy guy uh Sam um Berland Sam Berland um Shulian. <laughs> Shulians uh Shulians was I I actually have a there's a I have a nice photo of me um being uh, shown a card trick by Matt Oh, wow. um right and um because that was a favorite place where magicians would hang and think and then um you know i mean people like harry riser uh, one of my early guys who sh- one of the one of the early tricks i remember just being totally fooled i was standing at the counter in magic ink now this, and this could have easily been in the early we, we could if if we looked up and found out when The Vernon Inner Card Secrets book was published. It was right when that published. A guy comes in off the street, and he's wearing big hip boots, rubber hip boots, because he worked for the sewer department, the Department of Sanitation, but literally in the sewers. And he had a funny-looking hat on, and he came up to me, and I was standing there, and he said, hey, you want to see a card trick? So I said, sure. And he basically had me merely think of a card and he immediately found it wow. and um i said that's amazing i mean you know i know i'm not supposed to ask but is there any way and i said i'm not going to tell you how to do it but it's in that book and um this was one of the very very early times that i met johnny thompson that was the man oh wow. and and it was out of sight out of mind Wow. But Johnny was the guy who, by showing me that trick, that's where I—that was my very first Vernon book.
0: That's amazing. I love that trilogy. That was one. I think that was my very first uh, Vernon book for the three of them in the. Yeah. One,
1: one book. Yeah. I, you know, these were little pamphlets that I had. I in a little paperback, pink, blue, and white, or something like that. Yeah. But. But Johnny was, a, Johnny was a fixture around Chicago, and that was before he left. And you know, uh, he was still with, the, I think, with the, his um, a music group. You know, he was with the Harmonicats, yep. played harmonica. Yep. Very, very nice guy, very friendly. I mean, I've certainly lost touch, but whenever I get to Vegas, he, he's very warm and says hello. And, you know, I'm anxious to see the book.
0: Oh, yeah. That's exciting. Should be any day now. Um, when when did you get into? I mean, I know you said that your parents wanted to introduce you to culture and make that a part of your life. When did you get into art? Because properly, I mean, <laughs> this this isn't uh, you know a casual appreciation of art.
1: No, no. We've been <laughs> Jenny and I have been collecting since 1981, and and um, the inspiration is my mother she was an artist she uh oh, wow. the, some of the things i'll show you out in the hall are her her watercolors um she was a, she just did it as a hobby uh, she later sold a little not as anything famous but she loved it and um uh even after i moved to chicago whenever we would go back to uh, at that time in washington dc the the best thing we would do is go to the National Gallery and see art, and she would point out things and why she liked things, and so, and then she was in a couple exhibits, but so I I got my art inspiration from her, and I've always liked art. Uh, I do an awful lot um, with Photoshop, just, I'm not a graphics, I'm not a great creator other than I like humorous kind of art and so that's where the Murgle Funsky pictures come from Mm -hmm. Um, but I like to use Photoshop for that Um, I I mean I think I don't think I don't want to make too much of it and say that there's any great uh, overlap between modern art and the magic other than if you look around at our art with the exception of one or two things it's all very abstract and not representational Mm -hmm. you know the Davis Cone being a major exception Um, but but I I think uh, abstract art has a way of freeing your mind Mm -hmm. and I'm a I'm a big proponent of imagination of sort of not being, I mean, part of the whole idea of magic is sort of freeing yourself from the bounds of reality, or I mean, an illusion is if you don't start off doing the impossible, then at the very least, you're going to have to f- make believe you're doing something extremely difficult or yeah. extremely coincidental. Um, but you know, I'd rather just do the impossible and art just liberates your mind a little bit and it sort of, you know, you don't have to just think about reality or even with art, even the way that reality would look. In that sense, I guess magic is a little tighter and closer to reality. You're you're bounded by by what it's supposed to what it's supposed to look like.
0: Sure. A lot of magic is metaphor. Um, I especially if you boil it down into its, you know basic effect. You could make that a metaphor for anything. But a lot in, Abstract art is not necessarily metaphorical, and oftentimes is the opposite of metaphorical, which is interesting, um, for just from a, a creative aspect, that you have this freeing, uh, these freeing images around you, and then you go and create magic. What is, what is the, and again you said you don't want to tie it too much together, but what is what is the influence on abstractionism?
1: In your magic, oh, I'm, I'm, o- only that it sort of is liberating and freeing. I mean, I find that magic. I mean, thinking about magic and creating magic is a uh, is a really logical process. Mm-hmm. It's. Um, I don't mean logical in a restrictive rule made, but um, I'm not a I'm not a Harry Potter fan. I don't fantasy magic. Uh, kind of thing. It just doesn't interest me because it's way too easy to do it. You know, I mean, if Harry Potter wants to accomplish the impossible, he can just wave a wand and somebody writes that he did it. You know, it happens. I mean, we all have to think of a way of creating the illusion really so that the illusion can happen in this real world. We don't have a magic wand other than for misdirection. And, you know, so, so I think our our challenge is a, a lot harder, uh, and you know I'm uh, I, mean at at base most much of my magic is more thinking type magic than it is heavy sleight of hand. Mm-hmm. I mean I got the greatest respect for really good sleight of hand, and I certainly would agree that so much magic needs sleight of hand to make it look good. Um, but the things that I think I've come up with that, I'm um, you know, that I'm remembered for in magic mostly are things that wind up either being mental or mathematical or stacks. I mean, all of the stuff with memorized decks, uh, um, the shuffleboard, you know, um, and, I, I mean, I, I like to play around with that thing. Uh, partly because I'm not very good at sleight of hand. I mean, I don't, you know, that's not something that I would, I mean, uh, uh, that I would ever parade myself at. I think I can do certain things well, and I know what I can't do, and I don't use those. Yeah. Um, but But I can do the mental stuff pretty well, so that's why I would gravitate towards that. But it's also... I think, to the extent that um you're using something mental or gaffes or something like that um, there's um it, you can create a much greater hands off feel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, if you're using side of hand, it's hard to do it hands off um, unless you got an assistant. Um, but m- m- you can create a, a I didn't do anything. I didn't touch people it. People, yeah. yeah. So and and since I think that's a good goal to have, um, you know, that's another reason for doing it, I, I I mean, I think you can do that very easily with sleight of hand as long as you do it well, or you use misdirection, or you use the timing, or you separate the, mom- the moment from the magic. And, you know, I mean, there are a lot of good ways of do- of using the sleight of hand, and, and I would try my best to use them, too. But I think that the kinds of things that I create have also been, because they have less sleight of hand or don't totally depend on it, um, you know can can accomplish a hey, but he didn't do anything or you know feel for it mm-hmm. and and I think you know that's basic or you don't want him to suspect anything of you course. know so
0: so why why is that your why is that your goal why is that the drive
1: Well I think that's what magic is supposed to be i mean i remember i i I can't remember whose quote it is, but um but there is a, there's a quote that magic is not just doing the impossible, it's doing the impossible effortlessly. And I think the effort, you know, you're not supposed to look like you're trying or chugging or hard, you know, you don't... Uh, a magician to create the impossible shouldn't be grunting while he's doing that, you know? Yes. Um, it's supposed to come effortlessly without, you know, I, that's why most of the magical gestures that people use are snap your fingers, cast a shadow, blow up and do a, a whiff. It, those are little tiny effortless things that one does to cause it. You want. you know, you don't want to say. You know, count to a hundred you know by sevens backwards i mean it's not supposed to be difficult and and one of the that's just part of what magic is supposed to look like, so if it looks like you didn't do anything, I think there's a sense that it will seem more magical i don't i i, I don't want to knock or eliminate the idea that an awful lot of what magic is and probably proudly so is a demonstration of. Of skills, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Ricky Jay, who I've known since 1965, uh, he shies away from calling himself a magician. He doesn't want to do that because he doesn't like the connotation of clowns and face painting and things like that. And I, 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 why, I think Ricky's shows and careers are demonstrations of amazing skill that he has learned from very unusual and creative people in the underworld or the shadows, Mm -hmm. and um, that's another image of magic. Um, I don't even think they're incompatible. I think you can mix them. Um, Is that enough? (laughs) yeah Well, I mean (laughs) I know I mean that's that's sort of you know I I just don't want I don't want somebody to come away thinking that I don't like sleight of hand or I don't do sleight of hand I you know I I um no but of the of the Marlowe crowd when we all hung out around Marlowe um Marlowe was a um unique individual in card magic and one of the things that he was unique about was he could always deal with the individual person with whatever their forte or strength was both to fool them but also to talk with them and to discuss with them. I mean, I mean, I talked with Marlowe about memorized decks and stacks in ways that nobody else probably did. And Steve Drawn, uh, who's probably the best sleight-of-hand artist amongst us, you know, uh, would be, you know, trading off certain things with moves there. I mean, um, you know, each of us had our own little idiosyncrasies.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's great. I don't, there's not personally I have not had the experience of having a group like that that uh, one consistently met up and mm-hmm. shared ideas and collaborated but also two brought their own individual preferences all of my friends are all into the same kind of stuff mm-hmm. yeah I know I like, we, we all are <laughs> sleight of hand guys and I. I think it's refreshing um, when I can sit down and talk with someone who does not do what I do, but cares as much as I care and also has compatible ideas about the philosophy of magic. Hmm.
1: Um, oh, no, the, the Marlowe group has um, produced amazingly varied but all really really good I mean look at Bill Malone yeah I mean I mean Bill and I grew up I mean I was when Bill did his first restaurant show uh, he was about 16 or 17 it was at a Italian restaurant Chow so he asked me to come by and um And he was as funny then, you know, as a, but I mean, he always jokes. He said, I got all my sense of humor from Eddie, (laughs) which is about as, you know, funny as it is untrue. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, of, of all the people in the whole magic group, I would say Bill is the rare person who came, who, who became a professional presenter. He knows how to present. I mean, most of us, even if we're really good at what we do, we're hobbyists. I mean, we have other jobs. We have other careers. Um, I'm probably the exception in terms of I do the mentalism mm-hmm. presentation. But otherwise, I'm just a guy doing card tricks, you yeah. know. Um, but, but of course, Bill's made a career, a very, very successful one and well-deserved. I mean, um, but, and. Bill, Bill, Bill certainly, along with Steve, John was one of the great guys who had really good chops. And then they, then we all spread around all over the place. Allen's in Vegas now, and you know, uh, um, I mean, it was, but it was a very solid group. I mean, um, I joined that what they called the t- the Marlow table in '68 or '9, and went pretty much every single Saturday. Until Ed died in 91. Um, a <clears throat> couple times um, there were breaks when Ed had a heart attack. Uh, so he was brought out, you know, something like that. But even then, I mean, he had a heart attack and then he started calling Dave Solomon from his hospital bed. What about this? And he, <laughs> he starts dealing, doing, a, talking about a move and all that. There are... Very interesting stories about that, you know. What are are...
0: some of the things that you think people today, especially in my generation, don't know about Marlowe that they ought to know?
1: Well, I don't know what they don't know because I don't, I'm not sure. I'm a little concerned that uh, outside of a few diehard people who still read it, that his name's not going to last very long. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe even that's, that might even be true with Vernon. I mean, people aren't reading books and if they don't read books, there's not that much Marlowe to learn. I mean, there is, it's there, you can do it. His name is still alive now, but again, there's a generational kind of thing. And, you know, we're all going out. I'm, um, I, I'm, for, for what it's worth, Dave Solomon put out a two-volume set DVD on, on Ed, uh, a tribute to Ed. Part of it was a whole bunch of interviews with all of this, his met his students, his, the people at the table telling anecdotes, and part of it were tricks that were inspired by Ed's work for him. And I would certainly recommend to anybody get a set of that DVD because that's a good way to know Marlowe and see his inspiration and see who he fostered and all that. Um, when you ask what are things, Ed, Ed as a person... Was not an easy man to get to know, um, because unlike Vernon, I think I I would certainly use the word shy about Ed. Um, he was a quiet person. Um, he, I mean, here's a guy who, at age ten, has a childhood sweetheart, and his father won't let him bring home of cards, so he leaves his Deck of cards at his sweetheart's house, so he can practice there. <laughs> you know, and when he dies, you know, it's he's married to the sweetheart, and that's it. I don't know that he ever had a date other than her, other than Muriel. Yeah. Um, uh, we had great sessions, but pretty much every Saturday at about six o'clock, Ed wouldn't have to leave the restaurant because he wanted to have dinner and watch a movie with Muriel. And I mean he was a family man. Yeah. You can't say that about Vernon. It was I mean, they were really different people. I'm not yeah. knocking Vernon. No, no, you're but, right. <laughs> but, but but um Ed had a regular job. I I never really understood fully, but it was like a quality control guy in a tool and die company. And I I don't think he ever had a different job. You know, Vernon is half the time not working half the time doing construction and falling off <laughs> building, buildings you know half the time being supported by pro you know pro Vernon was doing lectures all over the all over the country yeah Ed didn't was was too afraid you don't know what it was like to try to get him to, to do a lecture he did a lecture once before I even knew him. And the next lecture he did was the one in St. Louis, and he, he called it 35 years later yeah. because that was the gap. You know, he, I mean, and, and we had to pull. It was like pulling teeth to get him to do it. He just and I don't know what it was. I mean, he certainly was a good worker um, and his lectures went along fine, but that wasn't what he was in it for. I mean, here's Vernon performing the Harlequin Act at the Rainbow Room. I mean, the closest I I, I think that I ever knew Ed to perform was that he was a pitchman behind the counter of the treasure chest here in Chicago, which was, again, like a novelty store. And it was funny. Um, Dave Solomon and I would go to the treasure chest to see Ed Marlowe, and nobody knew who he was. It wasn't like, I mean, he was famous among magicians, but this was a regular consumer street level sure. kind of thing and people would go so he would do a bunch of card tricks and then sell them the deck it was a Svengali deck but he would just amuse himself by doing all the tricks with a regular deck and then he would sell them the Svengali deck <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> so he'd be showing them you know they're all the same you know with Hindu shuffles but he just was trying to, re, for, to for his own amusement recreate these illusions sure. um There's a, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but John Rockabama has a a book of his um, arcade, arcade something or whatever it is. But it's all of the tricks that Ed developed while he was behind the counter at the treasure chest, his own presentation for the color vision box. He does a whole presentation of the Adams linking rings, which were all his original little cups and balls, things like that. And. Amazing, amazing stuff. But just to amuse myself, because, you know, here's this is Ed Marlowe trying to pitch magic. Um, he, uh, he was certainly competitive. No question. Um, I think that was certainly a major part of his genius, because he did not want anybody else to have the last word except him he wanted to better it mm-hmm. and no matter what you showed him he was going to better it and um and he usually did <laughs> um sometimes we'd argue with him whether it was better or not but you know i mean that was the driving force and he would and he was non-stop worker i mean i had a life i had, was a student i was into art. I was doing other things, you know. Um, I, I don't think Ed did. Um, we would go out to spend an afternoon, do all sorts of card magic with him. We'd go home. Finally, I have an interesting story. Ginny won't, would never let me back in the house until I changed my clothes because they reeked of cigar, cigar smoke. So, yeah, that was that was the one bad thing that I really, really, I, I am. I'm an avid anti-smoker. I don't like smoke and I don't didn't like it then and reeking with cigar smoke was the price you had to pay. Sure. And so I had a set of Saturday clothes <laughs> that I would wear when I would go to and Jenny would make me change out in the hall before cuz she didn't want those clothes back in the, in here. But that's the way it went, you know. Um but I remember many times where we'd be doing work in the afternoon and on card magic and people doing trading off and then you'd split, you'd go home, Saturday evening, you'd think about eight o'clock, the phone rings, what about this? And this is Ed and he's saying, yeah, but if you put the card over here and you did, you know, something like that, he it, he just hadn't stopped. So and that, that was Ed Marlowe. He was competitive. He was actually, and... I would say some sometimes he was secretive, but other times if, if he saw that you wanted to learn something, a move, uh, and you were serious, boy, he'd spend some time with you. I mean, first, I was worried when I was first starting to do some palming, I was worried about the windows. And... He was holding my hand and showing me exactly where and would curve this, telling me about rubber bands around him. And then he finally said, look at my hands. And he's got big windows there, you know, that was there. But it just it there was a gentleness when he was showing it to him, which I always was amazed because I didn't expect it of him.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I I really only have a few friends that know really know Marlowe's material and met him. Um and they all I mean they all cannot speak highly enough of him as a as a teacher. It's just like a really gentle and giving person.
1: I was at the University of Chicago for twelve years at very high scholarly levels at a really good school. Mm-hmm. I never met anybody that I could have unmistakably said was a genius in their field, except Fred Marlowe. i mean that, and I'm talking university of Chicago across the board, Nobel prize winners. I mean, they knew their stuff, but the idea of just being with them and sort of seeing the mind's work at that time, creative, you know, a little bit, um, I, I just saw a special on Einstein a while ago on television. Um, so uh, he couldn't help himself non-stop. I mean you just couldn't shut it off. Yeah. And and that was Ed.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I I it's jumping it's kind of switching scenes abruptly. But what was it like doing the clubs uh, you know, I mean what 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 was the scene? Can you paint a picture for me of the scene in
1: you mean with the mind reading? It, it or
0: mind reading but just Not even necessarily about the magic, but just about the scene. What was it like being in Chicago at a time where magic was the thing?
1: Well, when you say the clubs, I think we're really talking about bar magic. Yes. Bar magic. And um, if you go to the Chicago Magic Lounge, the new one that's just opening, I think that is uh, sort of a recreation of it. But in spades, this is a real professional job. Um, I know Shulian's most of all. Um, And I had uh, my bachelor party at Shulian's. Oh, wow. Um, um,
0: Who ate the goldfish?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it was was weird because, uh, let's see, that's 1974 when we got married. And... um, uh, I wanted it. I had about uh, about 15 guys. Um, and so, I mean, to me, you know, well, maybe this is just state old Simon. I, I, this was not going to be strippers. This was going to be magic. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's that was what I wanted, you know. And Eddie was there and I, it was about half magicians and half lawyers from my law firm. Oh, wow. And so. That was nice because they were laymen and the, um, I'm trying to remember which Shulian it was. It was not, Matt had already died and I think it was Chuck who came in and he did the magic show at the table. They have a private room there. Um, I mean, Shulian's was not a club. Shulian's was a German restaurant, but... With table magic, people coming around. It was always the Shulians at that time. Now, then later, it was everybody else. Jim Krenz was there, and um, uh, uh, a number of other people. Um, but it was it was really table magic for big tables. Sometimes they'd pull tables together, so it was loud, boisterous, laughing. Uh, same as J- Jim Ryan's too. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Jim wa- Jim was irish as opposed to german so i I, I, don't, I never thought about the demographics as to you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah right um but it was all fun magic um the Hebahaba al uh that was just really really great bill malone i mean um
0: what was the feeling in the city what was the, I
1: mean? What was was there like an electricity in the air? it would be hard to say that all of Chicago was into card into magic. It's not that kind of thing, but people knew about it and could would remember it well. Would remember it with fun, and knew that there were if you wanted to see magic, there were any number of places to go. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like you'd have to search it out or oh I wish, but there was none. Not, it was always magic going on at places. Um, and um, one, one of the things about our Marlowe table is that we did the rounds because we kept getting kicked out of restaurants. <laughs> um, I mean, some restaurants were tolerant of us. But basically, you know, this is a Saturday afternoon and magicians would gather at about one o'clock and sit there and you know we'd be nursing like a cup of coffee for five hours yeah. this is not I mean as long as the restaurant was basically empty they would tolerate but many times manager would come and eh, getting towards the dinner hour guys you know they need yeah. to clear some tables away um but basically you're you know you're talking about sort of an an empty restaurant where people were really glad to see a crowd or that they were happy to see their own magic. I mean, the waiters loved this sort of thing. I mean, some of our best um, uh, audience were the waiters um, or the managers.
0: That's fun. I, I'm excited about the, mm-hmm. the new lounge opening. I think that it's going to be good for, for magic in Chicago. Well,
1: sh- Chicago has had a tradition of people trying to keep it alive. Magic Chicago just closed more because um, one of the two founders, Robert, um, decided he didn't want to do it and Ben Barnes didn't want to do it alone. So Ben is now part of the Chicago Magic Lounge, uh, uh, you know, group. Um, Chicago Magic Lounge, I think, has a really good chance of success because it's heavily tied to the hotels and the tourist trade. They can get a good lay audience in there. Uh, and um, it's a nice setup. I haven't seen the new place yet. I'm looking forward to it. I'm not an opening night type guy, <laughs> you know. Um, but but I I think it's you know Joey Cranford is a is a, a good promoter, and you know I uh, I I know Ginny and I really enjoyed doing our show there, and undoubtedly would we'll do it again, you know. It's been a great draw for Magic. I mean, we've had, over the past couple of years, had some wonderful evening shows, you know, of real, you know, John Carney came in and did it, and Peter Samuelson Samuelson did it, and a whole bunch of, you know, really good top, top names, and it, it's going to be a good draw. Yeah,
0: I'm excited. Um, we're getting close to the time you wanted to end. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't want to keep you up all night.
1: Yeah, right. Well, you can go for a few more. A few, a few, you uh, did yeah, right. You, whatever you want to talk about. Wonderful,
0: amazing. Um, did you ever get burned out? In, um, or in law or in life anywhere, but.
1: Oh, in life, sure in law. I mean, law was. G- Jenny is also a retired lawyer, and she was a. Uh, far more dedicated and much more successful lawyer than I was I was very I was, did fine it's just I never really had my heart in it sure. and that's because I had all sorts of other non-law active I mean you know not only the magic but yeah. I don't know whether you know but Ginny and I did ballroom dancing for yeah. 20 oh yeah no huh I'll show you the ballroom on the way out. Um, I would
0: love to see it. <laughs> yeah, uh, no,
1: no, I'm not kidding. We're the only people who have a twi- who had a 29 story loft as a, as a ballroom, um, but uh, um, seriously, and uh, that's. I mean, I'm one of the non-athletes of the world and proud of it. Uh, you know, I not only am totally unathletic, <laughs> but also don't follow sports or know anything about sports. This gives you an awful lot of extra time. Um, um, I'm the only guy I know in Chicago who never saw Michael Jordan play, even though I was here the entire career. You know, I mean, I know there That's are
0: dedication, you
1: know? <laughs> not Michael Jordan. No, but I mean, I, I you know, I. I it's just, so, but the one thing we did was ballroom dancing, and that was we did it heavily. I How mean, did you we. Enter? Uh, we were on a cruise and saw a couple dancing and they were actually moving nicely and well and flowing across the floor and we asked how do you make it look like that as opposed to a little box you know and they said "Well, you take lessons dummy (laughs) (laughs) so we took lessons and we got to be good and we did international style dancing and we went to competitions and Um, decided because we were both very heavily practicing law and, you know, you'd get home at 8 o'clock and have dinner until 9 and you don't want to go out to the dance studios. So the one and only big purchase besides our art was um, we bought the apartment next door and knocked down all the walls and built a ballroom and would practice there. That's amazing. (laughs) But no, no, that's... that. So that's part of it. But, you know, those were things that I was doing as opposed to law. So, I mean, I was happy to retire as soon as I could. I mean, keep in mind, um, I've been retired now for uh, 19 years. Wow. So, you know, I mean, I vaguely remember what the law is. You know, I think it's what you're supposed to keep or obey. But, <laughs> um, but you know, I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't do much about it. <laughs> um, um, but um, Ginny, on the other hand, wound up um, not only being a very hard worker and dedicated worker, but uh, her firm Sidley Austin is one of the big national firms around the world. I, I mean, it's got. About eight different offices in the country, but also around the world, and she became the first woman managing partner of her firm in 150 year history. So, wow. so, so, uh, right? No small feet. Actually, she does she, have small feet. Yeah. <laughs> right? No. So, so uh, she was busy doing that, and you know, um, I retired in whenever it was 99 to do magic. That's what my retirement was. What produced try the impossible book. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the people who—it's an interesting thing. The people ask me, "Well, do you ever miss law?" And um, the only thing I really miss about the practice of law was that the people in my law firm were my prime suspects. My—that's where I practiced. I, I, right, exactly, and and. The other lawyers, the girls in word processing, the secretaries, they thought that was really cool. I mean, certainly compared to, you know, typing documents. So, um, I mean, that was, I would try out a trick and then you could do as many times as you want and stuff like that. And the word processing people were the people who produced my first uh, three books. So, you know, I mean, I didn't, you know, it was, that was in the early 90s. So, there was no... um, you know, illustrator or publisher or something like that. But it was nice to have a word prop you know. I'd show them some more tricks, and I'd say, but don't read that part because that's the secret, yeah. You know? <laughs> but But, but uh, when I retired, I, you know, did try the impossible. So then it allowed me to do that.
0: But you never felt a burnout for magic? You never
1: got tired of it? Oh, I never felt burnt out. I always liked it. I always wanted to do it. I did feel... Um, in 2003, I took up piano mm. for the first time. Um, it was my 60th birthday, oh. and Ginny, so sort I of asked well, what do you want to do, celebrate? And since I wasn't allowed to go to Vegas all on my own, (laughs) um, you know, I said, I would like to play the piano. And she sort of looked at, well, we don't have one. (laughs) You know, what do you... But I decided we we got myself a keyboard and uh, I started taking lessons and I really got into it. And from 2003 to 2005, um, I was doing a lot more piano playing than I was magic. And I think my magic... I won't say suffered, but it fell, I was, I, I I wasn't burned out in the sense that I was missing it, but I just didn't have the time. I was just other, otherwise occupied. And then, um, I, um, there were, I had regularly been asked by Louis Falanga uh-huh. to do a set of DVDs and I just poo poohed it because I'd, but that wasn't me I wasn't a performer and anything like that and quite by accident circumstances came around in 2005 um, with Josh Jay, Um, where I wound up coming out there to Vegas and like Tahoe uh, to help Josh so Lewis said come on let's do it and he gave me a deal I couldn't refuse so and it's not a monetary deal just you know but um, but i so I actually had to practice then, and Bill Malone helped me um sort of you know arrange some patters and stuff like that, and he knew the audiences and stuff like that, so how to get along with it and um that uh, that helped spur me back into things like that. do
0: you still play
1: piano? oh yeah yeah i I mean you wouldn't want to hear me but <laughs> <laughs>
0: well i'm glad i've always wanted to play piano david's a great piano player actually oh.
1: Um, well, that's the piano now occupies the ballroom since we can't dance anymore. <laughs> uh,
0: but I, I, that's it, brings me joy to hear that you decided to learn at six
1: Oh Oh yeah, no, no, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, you can teach an old dog new tricks. Absolutely, even if they're not magic tricks. <laughs> um, and no, I, I, I regret not having started at age four. But, sure. but um, no, I. I Part of what I got, I've always been curious. Just, I'm a curious guy. I want to learn stuff, politics, finance, you know, law, literature. I mean, one of the reasons I stayed at the University of Chicago for 12 years is because I could take courses in anything I wanted for six years of graduate work, and I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And those were some of the best intellectual years of my life. I never, never wanted to give it up, and constantly learning I feel bad for people who don't have that curiosity yeah. I feel bad for people who don't read magic you know yeah. um, I feel bad that I don't know sleight of hand the way you do <laughs> I
0: feel bad that we can't do what you guys did well, but and I'll feel bad about
1: that for the rest of my life no no no, no. you'll have time you, know, you'll, you don't know where you're going to be at age 74 that's true
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. This is such a treat. I really appreciate you doing this.
1: Um, That was fun.
0: Oh, I'm glad. There's a final question that I ask everybody at the end. And it is, can you remember the time that you were fooled the hardest, where you were just totally gobsmacked? Um, Like a guttural, physical fooled. Complete astonishment.
1: I, I don't know that there'd be any one time, but I I, I actually think I get fooled most um, by the things that um, are silent visual acts. Yeah. I mean, when I, if I, see, you know, I don't know much about it and don't want to because it's not anything I'd ever do myself. But when I see some of the... Uh, not you know the some of the Korean manipulators or card things or just any of the stuff. Um, I'll I'll go back a long 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 time ago. I saw what's his name Omar Pasha, the Black Art guy. Oh yeah. But the father. Yes. The yeah. father. Not now. His son does it at Madison Square Garden. Wow. Um, and I mean, yes, I knew about Black Art, but to see things happening visually. I mean, you know, um, I I have a real great respect for magic that just happens in an instant. I'm not sure it's the best kind of entertainment because it's over a little quick, but that moment to see it happen visually, you know, on a stage, something where you think you're seeing everything and it's just gone. I mean i i when I don't have any ideas there those are those are certainly moments that, because I don't know about it, i'm really fooled um, but I have also been fooled by Ed Marlowe many 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 times uh, I later learned on you know things, but he I remember very specifically when he was fooling around with propelled lapping early oh, yeah. and Um, the kinds of things when you didn't have an inkling about (laughs) about the propelled lapping I mean you know to see absolutely nothing happening and yet the card had was the correct card or the card I mean those are I later knew but those were I remember those moments vividly
0: um, I know I said that's the last question, and usually it is, but I feel like I would be remiss not, not to ask you like a couple quick lightning questions. Okay. Um, so, favorite artist.
1: Favorite artist mean painting artist. Yes. Um, probably Sam Francis.
0: Sam Francis. Mm-hmm. Favorite piece of literature, non-magic.
1: Uh, that's really, really hard. I mean, I spent six years writing a thesis on Plato's Republic um, and actually published an article on it. So on the one hand, that's what I kind of studied the most and really got into on depth. But I might go back to your burnout question on that, too. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not sure which way that cuts.
0: (laughs) Sure, totally. Um, Favorite film?
1: Uh, you know we don 't really uh, we're, 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 we, we see movies um, after the fact because we're on, because we 're on Netflix disc, not Netflix streaming, so we never ever see you know what 's current uh-huh. um, i mean I, I think i 'd probably go way back to things like the oldies that I grew up with um, you know like I mean the film that I remember earliest was. A movie with it was a circus movie, the greatest show on earth, James Stewart, yeah. and that was. Because, but I, sure. <laughs> but 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 it was, uh, it's not a good movie. It's not a great, but it was show business, yeah. and it was behind the scenes. In so I, I I, my years at at Playland pitching, mm-hmm. got me a real uh, renewed respect for carnies behind the scenes the you know, those guys Mm -hmm. and the circus had a lot of similarities with that. So how the carny games worked and, you know, those kind of things. I, uh, I mean, I could have been a, I could have been a good grifter if I had had more courage.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure, Simon. I really appreciate it.
1: Okay. It was fun.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to MagicalThinkingPodcast.com to hear more episodes and discover new ways to support the show. Check out ArtofMagic.com to learn magic and cardistry, and visit ArtofPlay.com for your playing card, board game, and whimsical interior decorating needs. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me directly at me at That's M-E at E-L-L-I-O-T-T, T-E-R-R-A-L dot com, and I'll be happy to respond to any questions or comments you may have. Before you forget, head into your podcast app and leave a rating and a review for Magical Thinking. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.